Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Hello, this is Jim Bennett. I'm Abby Bennett. And this is Dinner Table Politics. And I want to begin by telling you a story that you've never heard before. Are you excited? Yeah. Because you've heard most of my stories. I would say so, yeah. You usually complain that you've heard these stories. I, but compl- I wouldn't say complain. What would you say? Tune you out. All right. Well, you may tune this one out too, but this is a personal political story that goes back almost 20 years. And I'm not going to mention any names, but I was working with a guy who was running for the mayor to be mayor of a small Utah town. And not he, that small. Uh, no, relatively small. What town are you thinking of? St. George? No, oh. no. Smaller town than St. George. Oh, okay. But it's a town near St. George. Okay. All right. So I'm trying to be vague. I don't – because – anyway. So this guy came into my office and he said, I know your political gym and I'm running for office And I want some advice. What do you think I should do? And the first thing I said is, well, this is a small enough town that you ought to just go knock on everybody's door and tell them you're running for office. And he said, oh, that just would bother everybody. Nobody wants me to do that. I'm not going to do that. And I said, well, okay. That's the whole job of a politician is to bother everybody. That's exactly right. And I said, well, well, where are you for lawn signs? And he said, oh, I'm not going to put up any lawn signs. People hate lawn signs. I'm just going to put up flyers on grocery store bulletin boards. So really good stuff. Next to the lost cats. Next to the lost cats. And so I said, well, okay, if you're not going to knock on doors or do lawn signs, how are people going to even know you're running for office? I'm sure that the bulletin boards get a lot of traffic, but not enough to be able to justify this. And his answer was, well, I'm going to participate in all the debates. He says, I have a real problem with debates, though. And I went, okay, what's your problem with debates? And he said, well, they always ask me why I'm running for mayor. And I just kind of looked at him and I said, well, why are you running for mayor? And his response was, well, why would anybody want to run for mayor of this dumpy little town? I mean, and I said, well, okay, I, I agree with you maybe, but I'm not running for office and you are, and people want to know why. And that is the one question that politicians are asked almost more than any other. And it's one where they very rarely come up with a satisfying response. Well, I don't think that's, that's something that just gets asked to politicians. What do you mean? Like on all of, um, like med school applications, your personal statements and things, that's a big question you have to answer is what? why do you want to be a doctor? I think for almost like everything that you have to like um, run for or apply for, they want to know why you're doing, why you're putting so much energy into something that might be fruitless. And it is a hard question to answer, I think. Yeah. No, I, th- no, I, I agree that it is. I remember talking to my dad about it. And he said, he said it's essential. He would always counsel people who are running for office. He'd say, you need to answer that question in as succinctly and clear manner as you possibly can. Write it on a three-by-five card, stick it in your coat pocket, and look at it several times a day. And I feel I, as if there's only a, a few um, acceptable answers, though, for that. Okay. Well, like what? 
I love the people of <laughs> insert blank city, and I want to serve them. Well, this guy down in the small town in Utah, he eventually came up with, well, my family's very important, and I want to set a good example. That's a, You need to watch Parks and Rec, because there would be a great... Does that happen in Parks and Rec, yeah. too? Yeah, Leslie Nope, the, the, she really does care about the people of Pawnee and loves them, and she's running against... Um, Paul Rudd's character, who's just his dad, is the um, president of a like a candy company, who's huge in the town, and he's just running because his dad wants him to. I don't know. It's uh, not funny when I talk about it like that, but well, what do you think happened with this guy in the small town? I think he did not win. He came in fourth out and of that three man candidates. Is now Donald J. Trump. <laughs> right. <laughs> you stepped on my joke. My joke was that he came in fourth out of three candidates. Oh. But that man well, is Donald he, J. Trump. Did he spend better. any money at A little all? bit. He ended up putting up a few lawn signs. But it was really devastating to him. And when I ran for office, I thought, okay, I'm probably not going to win, but I don't want to embarrass myself as badly as this guy down in this small town did. Yeah. And I, I hope to think that I did not. But but anyway, uh, the, the question as to why you're running is very difficult. Dad's answer to that question was he said, I'm running because the things that Jefferson and Madison talked about matter. And I would get him to try to elaborate on that. And his response was, it doesn't necessarily even matter if the answer isn't great so long as it's one that motivates you and that is clear and that moves you forward. And when Mitt Romney first ran for president in 2008, your grandfather wrote him a three-page memo where he was detailed. Memos are supposed to be like less than one page. Yeah. I learned that in my technical writing class. Well, That's not really a memo at that point. That's a long email. Okay. So he wrote him a long email, but he called it a memo. And I think he wrote it on WordPerfect and attached it to an email. That shows oh, you how boy. old this was. Yeah. I don't know if WordPerfect even exists anymore. No. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So he wrote him a memo and, and Mitt Romney's response to him no, I'm backing up even more. This is why WordPerfect oh, is good. Oh, boy. Okay. This is when Mitt Romney ran for governor of Massachusetts in 2002. And Mitt Romney's response to dad was, I'm running for governor because I have the skill set that the people of Massachusetts need and I'm not part of the Beacon Hill crowd. Beacon Hill being where the capital was. Okay. And dad said, I didn't think that was a very good answer because he was saying that he was talking about how competent he was and it wasn't necessarily how motivated he was to serve and to, you know, some kind of higher principle and all that kind of nonsense. I think I'm too pessimistic for this because maybe people do say, maybe people believe themselves that I'm doing this because I want to serve the people, blah, 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 blah. There are tons of ways to serve people that don't, like, that don't involve being in a public office where you're paid well and you're in a high high public standing well a lot of it i think is money and power which is fine that's what that's what motivates humans to do most of the things that we do but nobody's that selfless to say oh i'm just gonna do this because i i want to serve right well and uh, to me whenever i hear somebody saying well i want to serve i want to give back i want to do all of this go go volunteer (laughs) at the soup kitchen yeah my response is you know there are a lot of people that could do this job because a lot of people think when they say that, it's like, I'm the only one who has the capacity, who's good enough, who's smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That was Al Franken, by the way. And, and you're just shrugging. Do you know who Al Franken no, is? I wasn't shrugging. I was just moving my hair on my face. Oh, okay. Different different body movements. Different body movements. 
But so many people think that they are indispensable to the republic. I, I think we talked about that a little bit. We talked about Abraham Lincoln, and that's one of the reasons that he was, I think that he was a great president. Was that he didn't think of himself he, as indispensable? He was so, I don't know. I, I say this just because I've read like a few biographies. I didn't know him as a person, but he was incredibly humble and he had had a lot of hard things happen to him and he didn't think of himself as the savior of the Republic. Right. Although he ended up being the savior yeah, of the Republic. Which, which I think was due in part because of his humility. But again, I didn't know him as a person. He might have been a, been a mean guy, but. Well, when I was an actor, I used to say this about actors. And I think the same principle applies to politicians. I would say that actors are the least emotionally suited people to be actors because actors encounter rejection 24 hours a day almost. And the one thing they crave more than anything else is acceptance. I was just thinking of another TV reference. Go ahead. Arrested Development when Tobias is trying to be an actor and he gets turned down for the fire sale job. And then it just cuts to him crying in the shower, biting a piece of soap. (laughs) (laughs) He never gets hired for any acting jobs and it devastates him every time. And it devastates him every time. And there are people who run for office over and over and over again and are constantly rejected. And... They they can't give it up. I mean, I look at Merrill Cook. Do you know who Merrill Cook is? Um, I've heard you talk about him before. He ran in Utah a bunch of times. He ran in Utah a bunch of times. He actually ended up winning in 1994. Oh, that's good. And re- being reelected in 1996, ran for Congress. Prior to that, he had run for governor He uh, several times as an independent. And he was a very wealthy man. He had an explosives business. And he spent all of his family fortune running for office and continually lost. And he finally won. And then he was defeated. And ever since then, he'd been running for office. He even ran against your grandfather in 2010. That's the last time he ran, I think. But it was so sad because you would see his signs and all he would do would get get a new sticker and paste it over the office he was running for. It was wow. the same sign with a new sticker. Merrill Cook for Senate. Merrill Cook for Congress. That's kind of smart. It's like saving on... Costs, I suppose. Saving on costs, I suppose. Well, all this was precipitated by Elizabeth Warren saying why she was running for president. And I wanted is, to... Is, she said officially that she's running. I thought she formed a campaign to see if she might run. Oh, yes. An exploratory campaign. I don't know what that means. I don't know what you have to It explore. means she's running for president. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get back to my break. Yeah, an exploratory committee. You think that that means that they're not—they're just I going imag- to explore yeah, I running for president? In, I imagine them in cargo shorts, like hacking through the jungle with machetes, <laughs> exploring. So I don't know what that has to do with being president. Well, it has to do with campaign finance laws because if you set up an exploratory committee, you can get money for the exploratory committee, and then you can get money later when you actually are a candidate. And it's—it's just—it's a legal fiction. She's absolutely running for president. And so she was asked the question that everybody is asked, why are you running for president? And her answer was interesting to me because I think you, you, I've heard variations of this answer before. And it's, you have to start thinking that people in Washington don't realize that when you say this same kind of thing over and over again, it doesn't reflect well on the people who've been in Washington. For instance, she is saying she's running for president because America's middle class is under attack. How did we get here? Billionaires and big corporations decided they wanted more of the pie and they enlisted politicians to cut them a fatter slice. 
uh, okay, working families today face a lot tougher path than my family did, she said. Our government's supposed to work for all of us, but instead it has become a tool for the wealthy and well-connected. Isn't she wealthy and well-connected? She is both of those things, and she's a politician who's been in Washington, D.C. for a very long time. So the question then becomes, okay, I'm running for office because the middle class has been under attack for all of the time that I've held office. Doesn't that strike you as somewhat hypocritical or somewhat counterproductive? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I would say she's kind of um, insulting herself almost in a way by using that, well, by attacking Washington as a as a whole. It, I don't know. Well, Just because she's so deeply ingrained in, over there. Well, and that was the attack against your grandfather over and over again is that you've been the problem, you know, because at the point when you run for office forever, you're saying, well, you've been back there and you haven't fixed it. When Dad first ran for office in 1992, he he did a TV ad where he said, and I don't think anyone would complain if your tax return could be filed on a postcard. And people thought that was a brilliant idea, and they waited for years and years as to whether or not Bob Bennett... a tax on a postcard? Yeah. That seems like a very big risk for security. Well, you you not you not, you don't exist in a world where people file tax returns on paper much anymore. But back in the day, you used to have to have huge stacks of paper that you would send in as your tax return. And he wanted to create such a simple tax system that you what would could be do- the what would be the picture on the back of the postcard? I I don't know. What do you think should be a the picture? A pile of burning money, maybe. Uh, okay, that's that's one option. Um, maybe some a nice me. pastoral I'll scene. I'll do this. I'll, <laughs> I'll make postcards with flaming piles of right. dollar bills. Well, the, the thing... Or maybe like like a, a screen clip from Scarface or something at the very end. Yeah, that's that's an option. I, I don't know. I have you a lot wanna, of ideas. You want to file your taxes? My, my with creativity this. is flowing now. <laughs> well, where were you? You weren't even born yet, but you should have been around when I Dad was talking around. about postcard tax returns. Scarface was around. Right. Well, it's not that Bob Bennett didn't want to do that and Bob Bennett didn't try to do that. It's that he kept saying in his final campaign, in a message that did not resonate, he kept saying, politics is a team sport and you function at the highest level where you can command a majority. There is no I in politics. Oh, that doesn't doesn't work. There's two I's. (laughs) That's correct. Dang it. But people don't want to hear that because people want to hear that Washington is going to solve all of your problems and Washington is going to fix everything. And so you have a circumstance where people offer themselves up as a savior to all of the problems that they are entrenched in themselves. I would say that was Donald Trump. He he really positioned himself as an outsider and said he was going to drain the swamp. Right, right. And, And that was one of the most appealing parts of his message. You always hear everybody talking about how they're an outsider. For heaven's sakes, I went to a speech that when Joe Biden spoke to the UN Humanitarian Fund, and he said he started talking about himself as an outsider. This is when he was the sitting vice president of the United States. And you shouldn't be an outsider there. You're John. not an outsider. You're not. You're, That's worrisome. You're right in the center. But everybody loves the idea of somebody being able to come. We love in. an underdog. It's not even an underdog. It's just somebody else who who isn't mired in the swamp, who isn't mired in all of the kind of garbage that Washington has had to deal with, and that can come to our rescue. 
And Elizabeth Warren is trying to position herself as that person, and I don't think she is that person. I think Elizabeth Warren is already pretty well known by most people, and most people already have a strong opinion about her, either positive or negative. Right. So it's it's kind of hard for her to, I don't know, appear as like a new fresh face. Well, I don't know that she's... When, yeah, you, when I think of Elizabeth Warren, I think of the Pocahontas thing with Donald Trump. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is not probably what she wants people to think of when that's come up on the campaign trail already she was asked in iowa why she took the dna test oh yeah yeah and she said uh she admitted she says i am not a person of color uh but what yeah (laughs) right no right her no her dna test well so so you know do you understand why that was a big deal why anybody was raising anything about this well because she she said something about I, can't, I don't remember the specifics. It was a. It wasn't a big deal. Though, well, when she taught at Harvard, she taught at Harvard. Uh, th- there is concern that she got her position based on the fact that she represented herself as a Native American, or that she had Native American ancestry because of her high cheekbones, and there was a family story that there were Native Americans in her background. Uh huh. And so that's been mischaracterized a number of times that she had gotten a scholarship or she'd gotten anything like this. And there's no really hard evidence that there's been any kind of specific uh, job advantage to her doing this. Although she did tell the Harvard committee that she had Native American ancestry. And I think that was even represented in some kind of Harvard journal. But... uh, Donald Trump at one point challenged her to take a DNA test and said he'd give her a million dollars if she was of Native American ancestry. Well, she took the DNA test, and it concluded that she has one 1,024th okay, of her here, DNA. Here's the thing, though. I know that this isn't what the, what the podcast is about, but those DNA tests and things, there's no certain like DNA sequence that says that you're white or that you're black. Right. The reason that... A lot of people do 23andMe, and it comes back, and it's like, oh, you're 2% Irish and 17% Italian, blah, 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 you know? It works a lot better for white people because there's such a big sample size of white people because they're the majority of the people taking these tests. So we don't have a Native American sample? Well, I I would be – I'm sure that she doesn't really have that much American um, Native American heritage, but it isn't as accurate for people of color just because there is such a smaller sample size. That's that's so, helpful to know. That's just something to think about. Well, we have a little bit more to think about with Elizabeth Warren when we get back from our break. Okay, so my problem with Elizabeth Warren isn't that she isn't an outsider. My problem is that she, I think, has misdiagnosed the fundamental economic condition of the United States of America. She says, billionaires and big corporations decided they wanted more of the pie and they enlisted politicians to cut them a fatter slice. And whenever politicians start talking about the pie or the economics of the country as a pie, I get very nervous. Yeah, we need a new metaphor. Pie is overused. Well, it's all... Okay. Your piece of the quiche that even rhymes. Well, you weren't around in the 80s when the big book was Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. No, I wasn't. You're correct. All right. So, quiche, anyway. But the, the thing about... Tart? Bo- uh, tart has other problems with it. Oh, uh, I guess. There are other issues with tart. But the problem, the main problem with all of these is that you're talking about a static economy. 
you're coming at it from the standpoint that, okay, the economy is a certain amount of wealth, and it's Washington, D.C.'s job to slice up the wealth and hand it out to people. Well, isn't it a pretty well-documented fact that the middle class is kind of dissolving at this point? There's not, there's not really a middle class like there used to be. Well, then what are we? We're not upper class, and we're not lower class. I think well, we're very solidly middle class, are we not? Well, I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I should have looked up better facts before I started talking. No, well, there's a lot of people talking about the shrinking middle class. Yeah. Uh, but the, the challenge with... Like the 1% are just getting, are getting wealthier. The 1% well, own something like okay, half but, of the wealth in the country. Well, all right. So where did they get that wealth? Did they get it from you? You listen to Elizabeth Warren, and she talks about the billionaires slicing up the pie. And if you listen to her, you are assuming essentially that Bill Gates, okay, let's not use Bill Gates. He's like 19, so 1995. Uh, Jeff Bezos, okay? Okay. Jeff Bezos. He's disgustingly wealthy. He's disgustingly wealthy. Uh, but, but where did he get his wealth? Did he get his wealth by stealing it from you? According to no, Elizabeth Warren, but, uh, yes. Amazon workers are not paid very much. Okay, now which is pretty sad. Like the way there, there a lot of people's salaries at Amazon compared to Jeff Bezos will like make you nauseated. Well, okay, like, the amount of work that is done by the, I don't know. So I want to share with you my economic parable that I wrote a few years ago. Okay. Are you excited? Okay, it's good. It's called the Parable of the Rolling Stones. Are you excited? Okay. Because you know who the Rolling Stones are. I'm aware. I'm a big fan of the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones are coming to the United States next year for another tour. Mick Jagger is 74 years old, and he's still going to come on tour. Granted, they will be in coffins. They won't be alive Well, the tour. Keith Richards has not been alive it's, since it's, 1977. It's going to be a countrywide viewing with their music <laughs> playing in the background. Well, I always say that Keith Richards died in 1977, and nobody's noticed. I always see memes that say every time you smoke a cigarette, a year gets added to Keith Richards' life. Oh, God takes a year from your life and adds yeah, it to Keith yeah, Richards. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's uh, so, okay. The Rolling Stones are coming on tour. Now, look at the wealth disparity of how people are going to make money on that tour. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, there are four Rolling Stones. There are actually five Rolling Stones, but one of them is an employee. He gets paid a salary. His name is Daryl Jones. He's been with him ever since Bill Wyman left in 1992, but he's never been an official Rolling Stone. So Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Ron Wood, and Charlie Watts, those four guys, own the Rolling Stones, and they probably will, I don't know, I'd say they probably get 80% of all of the money that's going to be paid, and the rest of it goes I to... I doubt 80%. I doubt it. Okay. I bet it's way less than that. Uh, all right. Well, okay, let's say 50%, okay? Okay. So 50% of all of the money that's going to be paid in tickets goes into their pockets, and the rest is divvied up between, um, you know, everybody else. And, you know, you have promoters and you have all these guys. And then at the bottom, you have the guys that load up the trucks and you have the guys that sweep up after the stadium and all those guys. And those guys, if you compare the money they're making to the money Mick Jagger is making, the disparity, you know, the wealth inequality is huge, right? Yeah. Okay, so imagine... You say, okay, that's not fair. And so everybody involved in the Rolling Stones tour, we are sick and tired of wealth inequality, and everybody involved in this tour is going to get the same amount of money. That includes the guy who sweeps up, and that includes Keith Richards. Isn't that a good idea? 
I think you're you. I the parable works kind of. You see where but, I'm going with yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, kind of. But the, you're you're falling under. I guess it's called like the gospel of prosperity, thinking that if you work hard, you'll get money. Like the harder I'm not you work, saying the that money. at all. Well, I, I'm not saying anything about working hard and getting. Well, money. you're saying that they deserve more money because I'm not they, saying they deserve anything. Well, I don't this think Mick Jagger sucks. <laughs> what I'm saying is that if you propose that to Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Ron Wood, and Charlie Watts, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Ron Wood, and Charlie Watts say, uh, "I don't want to do that. I'm not willing to. I'm not willing, whether or not I deserve it or not. I'm 73 years old. I've got enough money. I'm just not going to go on tour. So forget it." Tours off. If you're if you're going to make it so that I can't make my obscene amounts of money, I'm just not going to go on tour. And so what happens is that instead of having huge wealth disparity, nobody gets any wealth at all. No wealth is created, and the guy who sweeps up doesn't have a job. That's the parable of the Rolling Stones. That kind of holds up, but again, there's just so many. I I don't know. That's that's just. First of all, poor people don't get all of their money from richer people. They don't all work for richer people. They and don't? I, I wouldn't... I don't know. Do they this work is, for this poor is a people? Dumb par- I don't like this parable. I just think it's dumb. Poor people are not lazy. They don't... I did, I, at no point in this parable did I say anybody Again, was but, lazy. But you're arguing against Elizabeth Warren she's, because she's more liberal-leaning and more... No, I'm arguing against Elizabeth Warren's uh, economic misunderstanding. Elizabeth Warren seems to think that billionaires are billionaires because they stole that money from poor people. And I don't think there's any evidence that that's the case. I think it's absolutely unfair, though. I think that... Oh, how do you make it fair? That's the parable of the Rolling Stones. I don't know. Socialism? There you go. And the problem with socialism, as Margaret Thatcher once said, is that sooner or later you run out of other people's money. And But trickle-down economics doesn't work either. Neither of them work. You have to find a happy medium. Uh, well, what do you, do you what do you mean by trickle down economics? Like Reagan stuff, Reaganomics. Like, oh, give give rich people a ta- bigger tax breaks, and then they'll spend more money, and more of it will eventually get down to the poor people. And why didn't that work? It, it we've tried. It, that's what Donald Trump is trying to do right now. It just well, Donald Trump. Work. Well, Donald Trump is actually doing the opposite in terms of his trade policies. I Donald hate Trump talking about this. This is. So, so <laughs> well, I'm sorry. It's frustrating, but this is the thing. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not trying to to be some kind of raw raw capitalist. People talk about capitalists versus socialists, and I think capitalism is kind of awful in a lot of different ways. And I think of capitalism much in the same way that Winston Churchill thinks of democracy. Do you remember the famous quote by Churchill about democracy? Everyone's a worm, but I'm a glow worm. Did Winston Churchill say that? Yeah, it's my favorite Churchill quote. Uh, I didn't know that. It doesn't have anything to do with democracy. I just like saying it. Well, he also said democracy is the worst form of government, except for all of the others that have been tried. Yeah. And I see capitalism not as necessarily a choice or a good thing, but a recognition of that's how the world works. And if we recognize that's how the world works, we then can create systems where we maximize the the uh, and minimize the damage and maximize the benefits of how the world works. Um, for instance, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of gravity, but ignoring gravity not the same thing at all. Uh, well, I think it kind of is. No. Why not? Because Why? because you can't just go out into nature like Isaac Newton did and watch something happen and say, "Oh, that's capitalism." Gravity has 
always existed and always will exist. Oh. That's not the same with economics at all. I think it is. No. <laughs> I think it is. I, no. I, I think the sooner we understand it, that, the better off we're going to be. And the fewer Elizabeth... So, so Russia, they're, they're, they're all floating around? Like, like... All right, we're going to talk about whether or not <laughs> they Russia... Just, they, don't, they don't obey gravity? Uh, we're going to talk about Russia and gravity when we get back. Are you saying that Russia isn't a capitalist country? At one point, they were trying not to be. They were trying not to be. It didn't work. To talk about something that didn't work, the Soviet Union actually disbanded because it wasn't working. My argument was just that gravity is a law of nature and capitalism is not. The law of supply and demand, I think, is just as real and scientific no, as the law of gravity. You can't you can't write my, equations about that. You can no. actually. You absolutely can. My father used to say that if he had if he was able to engrave one thing in stone over the doors of Congress, he would engrave the phrase you cannot repeal the law of supply and demand. That it is impossible if somebody is demanding something and there is a limited supply, the price is going to go up, period. If someone is not demanding something and you have an unlimited supply, the price is going to go down. There is no way around that. And governments that try to fix prices and try to change that end up doing more damage with good intentions. Okay. Again, I just don't think that capitalism is an ingrained thing in nature. Do I don't think that if you went back to the times of the cavemen, they would follow capitalism. What would they follow? Do you think they were socialists? Well, they've lived... I, I, I don't want to start going into Neanderthal economics <laughs> policies. I think Neanderthal economics policies they, they should lived, be the subject I of one of our podcasts. I think they lived in tribes and stuff, so it's probably more like socialism. Like, they all took care of each other. Well, see, capitalism is... So, there was a meme that was going around uh, from the movie Trumbo with Brian Cranston as Dalton Trumbo, who was a blacklisted communist scriptwriter. Oh, I thought it was Dumbo, but Trump with no, his no. face instead of an elephant? No, no. And not, that's nightmarish. No, this was, this was way back during the McCarthy hearings, and uh, Dalton Trumbo w- was, was blacklisted for being a communist. Can you imagine, like, the, the ele- what's the Pink Elephant song in Dumbo? Pink Elephant's on Parade? Yeah, mixed with Trump. Oh, that's... That would be the scariest thing because that song used to scare me so bad when I was little and then throw some Trump in there. Man. All right. Well, that's good. Well, I'm going to have to sing that for our next podcast. Ugh, scary stuff. No. So in this, there's apparently a scene where the, his daughter comes and says, Daddy, what's a communist? And he says, okay, well, let me explain this to you. When you go to school and you have a sandwich and your friend doesn't, what do you do? And she says, share. He says, what, you don't tell your friend to go get a job? You don't tell your friend that they're lazy? No. Well, then you're a communist. And I remember seeing that and going, that isn't communism at all. And that isn't an indictment of capitalism at all. Because communism would be, okay, I go to school and the principal takes everybody's sandwiches and puts them in a big pool, slices them up, and then hands them out. Capitalism is I get to choose how I share my sandwich or don't share my sandwich. Capitalists don't necessarily think that everybody should starve in the streets. They think that the federal government is not the best vehicle to provide. So then what is the best vehicle? The best vehicle, I believe, the best vehicle is families, tribes, the kinds of things you're talking about. That isn't an indictment of capitalism. That is, okay, we work together. To be able to help our own. Okay, what about homeless people that don't have families? 
Well, I think that capitalism has a number of excesses, that, and I think there is a role for the federal government. I'm not a pure capitalist in that if somebody's starving to death and the government sees it, the government shouldn't act. But I do think that we need to recognize economic realities that are underlying the problem rather than just say the reason people are starving is because Jeff Bezos is rich. That has nothing to do with why people are starving. I don't think people say that. I think people that's say... That's exactly what Elizabeth Warren just said. Well, I, I don't... I don't think that's exactly what she said. She didn't say Jeff Bezos. No, she said billionaires. Okay, so it's Bezos and I friends. think that his pay compared to the pay of his employees is incredibly unfair. So if he shuts he should, down Amazon, is everybody better to, off? He's not going to shut down Amazon. Right. But he makes, he's the richest man in the world. Right. He's a multi-billionaire. That's right. more money than any of us can even fathom. Oh, you're right. You're right. And And his employees are in a lot of places like mistreated and don't have good benefits and I, I am not arguing against any of that i'm saying when the government steps in and says this is how much you can make jeff bezos jeff bezos then says well guess what i've got everything i need i'm done and then amazon shuts down i don't think amazon shutting down helps anybody how does that how does that make anybody i don't richer? think he'll shut it down he's I no all right. It's it, The thing is just falling apart. People aren't that vindictive and petty. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. We are out of time. And if you are listening to this on the radio, please subscribe at iTunes or at the KSL Podcast Center. Until next week, this is capitalist Jim Bennett. I don't know what I am, Abby Bennett. And we'll see you next time at Dinner Table Politics. <laughs>